look for somebody who you think has been where you want to go and can give you the advice to help you get there. And you want to be able to ask questions of them and, and run that by. So you want this truly interactive kind of relationship. Also, I think just studying is also helpful. For me, what I did for three months, even before I engaged a coach, was I studied. I bought some books and I read about it. So I was working on shaping my belief system. So when I went to get coaching, I was ready for it because I'd already started working on my belief system. And that allowed me to get more out of the coaching relationship as well. Welcome to Starve the Doubts. I'm your host, Jared Easley. Our co-host today is Johnny Lee Phillips, who's the host of the Life Detective Podcast over at johnnyleephillips.com. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Jared. How you doing? I'm doing great. And one of the reasons I'm doing so well is we're fortunate today to have the opportunity to speak with Kirk Bowman. Kirk is the visionary of value at Mighty Data. He is the mastermind behind the art of value, where he helps his clients to get paid what they are really worth by discovering value creating options, and start pricing. Kirk, welcome to the show. Hey, Jared. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man. Kirk, you're no stranger to Star of the Doubts. You know what's coming. What is the best concert that you have ever been to? Can I give more than one answer? Please do. All right. So I knew this would be the question because you're right. I've listened to the show. My first answer would be probably from high school. I grew up in Arkansas, and we would go to concerts at Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. And so there was a show where Brian Adams opened for Journey on their Frontiers tour. And that was just an amazing show. So that would be my first one from high school. My second one would be when I went to New York about two years ago. Love to go to a jazz club when I'm in New York. So I went to Blue Note, and it was on a weeknight. And walked in, went to the early show. We do two shows there. And so I went to the early show. It was like a nine o'clock show. And it was a group I'd never heard of called Oregon. And they're a jazz uh, quartet. Amazing, amazing musicians. And so anyway, stayed for the first set. Loved it so much. Stayed for the second set. So those would be my two. Excellent. Now, I've played Oregon Trail growing up, but I've never seen Oregon play. So They're a phenomenal group. They've got... Two of the musicians play multiple instruments. There's one guy that plays both jazz guitar and piano, which is almost unheard of. Those instruments are so different wow. in the way you play them. And then their woodwind player, which is my background, he played like eight different instruments during the show. So it was just amazing. Kirk, I heard a rumor that you are, are quite the karaoke artist. Is that true? I do sing. I've never been accused of going in a karaoke bar. I'm not sure where that rumor got started. I'll have to do some investigation. <laughs> well, I'm going to spread some more rumors throughout the interview. But yeah, I hope we can persuade you to do some karaoke at the podcast movement in Dallas. I so. would be willing to do that, especially if you have a cash bar. <laughs> uh, that is likely. Let's go ahead and segue into finish this sentence. Johnny, would you kick us off? Sure thing. Kirk, the best thing about eating sushi on date night is? My wife will go with me. <laughs> that's encouraged <laughs> what are some other good date night suggestions Kurt well anytime with my wife obviously but there's a couple restaurants here in Dallas that I really enjoy one is a, a German restaurant called the Bavarian Grill and another one's a place called Love and War in Texas and it's all about Texas food and Texas wine Texas beer so it's a great place I love to take people when they come from out of town to go there excellent I hope people are taking notes here, but pinning this on their boards there on Pinterest. Okay, finish this sentence. If you ever alter vocal octaves in iMovie... It better be a really interesting dialogue. 
and it sounds like some of that experience with your son recently. Yes, I have. You were paying attention. I'm trying to remember the name of the Christian song. I think it was Michael W. Smith, Gloria, at like two <laughs> octaves up. It was pretty entertaining. That's encouraged. Go ahead and try that. Some homework for the listeners there. All right, Johnny, you ready, man? Yeah. Hey, Kirk, in 2009, you were at a conference, and Jonathan Stark said that if you bill by the hour, there is an artificial limit on your income. So what was your reaction to that, and how did it change your course direction? Well, my reaction was hell no, internally. Mm. Now, on this particular panel, I was the advocate for hourly billings. I really was set at the opposite viewpoint. But based on that one statement and from that panel, three months later, I decided to switch my business away from hourly billing over to something called value pricing. Wow. And what have been the results from making that decision? Well, probably the most tangible results is we increased our revenue by over 50% the first year and over 70% the second year that we implemented this business model. More than that, I think it has encouraged us to look for ways to innovate, to create more value for the customer, and also to go deeper when we're visiting with a customer, try to understand what is the value they are seeking and what do they see as valuable as well. Kirk, value pricing puts the customer first and allows you to focus on what they truly need, and then the pricing comes in. Would you be willing to talk a little more about this and give an example of how you would approach a customer when you first engage them? Sure. So the business that I've been in for a long time is the software business. And so when somebody calls us, they want a website, they want a software program to do X or Y. They want to talk about the what that they need. But what I want to do as part of value pricing is I want to understand the why. For example, why do they need it now? Why not six months ago or why not six months in the future? There are answers to those questions that will tell you why this is important for them. And what I want to understand is how is it going to help them? Is it going to increase their revenue? Is it going to decrease their costs? Is it going to change morale? Is it going to allow them to grow without increasing headcount? Once I understand those things, then I'm in a much better position to craft a unique solution that will help them achieve what it is they want. So, Kirk, one thing that is really appealing to me about not billing hourly is that I feel like I am getting what I pay for. But with hourly billing, I always think of a bad lawyer or a crooked mechanic who bills me by the hour. And later I'm left wondering why it took so long and you know, why I had to pay so much for what I actually paid for. So the value pricing model is much more appealing to me because I know exactly what I'm getting and what I'm paying for. Do you think that hourly billing will die out and that value pricing is the model of the future? I do think that hourly pricing is the model of the future. I think hourly billing is going to die a slow, long, and painful death. It's interesting. Hourly billing originally comes from an attorney, I want to say it was around the 1920s, that decided to implement principles of the Industrial Revolution, kind of the whole assembly line model to professional services. If you go back before 1900, there were no attorneys billing by the hour. It actually has a shift away, in my opinion, to hourly billing away from the way it had been done way prior to that. The advantage of hourly billing, as you mentioned, is it gives the customer more certainty. And as the professional, I'm taking on more risk. And so I think that's what a customer wants when they're hiring somebody to do things such as accounting work or legal work or custom development, any of those type of things. Kirk, would you be willing just to talk about the difference between tangible and intangible values? And then what are some ways that you provide intangible values to your customers? 
Sure. So a tangible value is going to be something that has a dollar figure tied to it. We're trying to increase sales by 10%. We're trying to reduce costs by $10 per unit. We're trying to grow 20% without adding another employee. Those are the things that it's easy to quantify once you understand that those benefits are going to be created. However, it's actually the intangible benefits that are often more valuable. Of course, they're harder to price because they're intangible. But things like employee morale, increasing productivity, giving people enjoyment or quality of life. I mean, one of the things that I look for is somebody going to be actually be able to go home earlier or take vacations they've never been able to take before, increase their quality of life because of what we're doing. And that does happen. So the intangibles are actually some of the most fun things to find out about. Kurt, do you have some specific examples? You said that does happen. Like, what are some specific examples that you can think of where intangible values have played out? So I think of a customer of ours that they hire the labor when a performing act comes into town to a big stadium. They will hire all the labor that shows up to move the trucks, hang the lights, do the rigging, do the sound, do all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. so it's basically kind of like day labor in a sense. They were doing this on iPads with spreadsheets, and they were emailing the spreadsheets and then recompiling. They wound up doing the data entry like three times. And they were telling me stories of how they were literally working seven days a week just to try to keep up, and they were growing. And because of the system we put in place for them, they now actually get to take a day off. Wow. (laughs) I'm sure they appreciate that. Well, yeah, and it was a family business too. So it was a business where you got the father, the mother, one of the sons, an uncle. I mean, half the business was the family. And so it had incredible intangible benefit to them. So Kirk, I want to provide value to my customers. How do I actually price something? How do I quantify things? Okay. So first of all, we got to decide, well, what are we talking about pricing? Are we talking about pricing a service or a product? Because they are very different. I'll speak to pricing services just because that's what I know more. But the principles can apply similarly. With value pricing, what I'm looking to do is first figure out what is the value that's going to be created for the customer. And then in my pricing, I'm looking to set a price that sets a fair return on investment for the customer. And there's not a set ratio, so it doesn't have to be 1 to 5 or 1 to 10, although those are common ratios that people may shoot for. But I'm looking for a price that captures a fair portion of the value. And what I find that a lot of professionals are doing is the prices they're charging are not capturing a fair portion of the value. In other words, they're creating so much more value than they're charging for. And so value pricing, when you implement the business model and you start looking at it, you tend to wind up raising your prices simply because you realize you're creating so much value, it's fair to raise the price. One of the ways that I look at value pricing is we're basically dealing with profit on two sides. For me as the service provider, my profit is obviously the difference between the price I charge and the cost. For the customer, their profit is the difference between the value that's created and the price they pay me. And as long as the value they receive is substantially higher than the price I'm charging, it's a win-win. Kirk, what are some of the ways that the listeners could test pricing on new products and services? Do that. Test it try something new. Um, Just this morning, we've been wrestling with an issue in my business about how do we make the whole bug testing part of creating software, how do we create that in a way that makes the customer see it as valuable so that if they want higher quality, they will be willing to invest in it. And we came up with some new ideas this morning. We just tried it on a brand new proposal, the first one out the door. We don't know if it's going to sink or swim, but we tried something new. And that's what you do. You try it different. 
Now, obviously, it's easier to experiment with pricing when you're coming from a position of financial strength, but always experiment. Even if you're doing it hourly, you still need to be experimenting, but ideally, you would get away from hourly altogether and do something that truly involves pricing. Kirk, would you talk a little bit about labor theory of value, how someone can reset their beliefs to a value perspective? So you just hit it at the core of the issue. There are two theories of value. The first is the labor theory of value, which kind of Marx was not the originator of the idea, but he was one who really promoted it, saying that the value of something is equal to what's been put into it, whether it's the raw materials or the labor that goes into it, that basically somehow you can quantify that. The opposite of that is the subjective theory of value, which says value is what the customer perceives it to be. It's what they say it is. So if you're focusing on what the customer perceives the value to be, that's the true value. How much time it takes to do something really is truly irrelevant. And that's one of the reasons I can't stand hourly pricing is because it focuses on the wrong thing. When you focus on the subjective value, the customer's perspective of value, first of all, you're focusing on them first. And second, most of the time, the value is going to be higher, so you're going to be in a position to actually price better. Mm. So, Kirk, what advice would you give for someone like myself who's just starting out as an entrepreneur who is getting ready to sell their first product? If you have an audience, ask them about the pricing. Get some opinion. Obviously, you want to find out what other people are selling it for, but better than that if you've got competitors selling something similar. But ultimately, I want to know what my customers think. I mean, shoot – let a small group try it out and then ask them, what was the result that you got from this? What are you able to do now that you couldn't before? If you can get that in your head, then you're going to have an idea on pricing. And I think what happens a lot of times, particularly people starting out, is they wind up pricing too low, even with products on the internet. As long as the product creates substantial more value than you're charging it's a fair price. And I think a lot of times, except for the people that are really good at this, are making a full-time living and been doing it for a while. But for those that are still building their business, a lot of times there's more value being created than you realize. And as you perceive that value, you're going to wind up increasing. Now with pricing products also, look at what other people are doing, whether it's somebody who's doing the same thing you are or something different. In the online space in particular, I love looking for innovative ways that people are pricing. So like, for example, I saw somebody on a website recently that was charging for email responses. And I thought it was a brilliant marketing move. They charged, I want to say, 10 bucks for an answer to one email. One question, they'll give you an answer, 10 bucks. Or if you want unlimited answers in a month, I want to say it was like 100 bucks. And, of course, they put parameters around it. They said, okay, we'll answer, you know, don't send us five questions. We'll only answer one at a time. So you're going to get one answer and four questions unanswered. And we mm -hmm. only answer questions nine through five, Monday through Friday. And in general, it's going to take us 48 hours to turn it around. But they were able to quantify that. And I thought it was brilliant. They realized there was value in answering people's questions via email. And they were able to price it based on one question versus unlimited. And of course, what happens? Most people are probably going to go for unlimited because people realize what a good deal it is. Absolutely. Okay, Kirk. So I'm planning on launching a product and I'll be a little selfish here and ask you, I got a price point in mind based on what some other people have done that are similar. Is it prudent to start out at a, a little bit lower price point and work yourself up versus I start out a little bit high and maybe not as many people are buying it, so I lower it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ultimately, I think you experiment 
I think one of the things you want to try to avoid, though, is, quote, discounting. Okay. You don't want to say it's, and this may be a subtle shift, but it's one that when I see it one way versus the other, I think one way works and the other doesn't. You don't want to say it's a $200 product, but we're going to sell it to you for 97 You want to say, we're going to sell it for 97 but this price is only going to be available for 30 days, 60 days, and then it's going up. And you might tell them how much it's going up, or you might not. So you're not really discounting, you're just offering a special price to early adopters. Is there an advantage to saying, hey, this price is 97 but it's going to be this? Certainly. It creates a reason to buy now. And that's one of the things that your pricing can do. The other thing that's really advantage, that's really helpful with pricing, there's a video out there by a gentleman by the name of Dan Ariely. He just does a lot of writing and he's a scholar and professor in the area of human behavior. And he did a book called Predictably Irrational. The video shows where Economist Magazine sent out a subscription form with two prices on it. He decided to do an experiment. Actually, I think their subscription form had three. But basically what he did is he took their subscription form. He took 100 students, offered them two options. And let's say it was A and B, and the students picked B 68% to 32%. He then offered them three. So he kept the original two options, A and B, and added C. Well, you would think that they would still pick B as the dominant option. They didn't. They wound up picking C over B. And what that shows is we really don't know what the value of something is until we compare it against something. And so there's a concept in pricing of anchoring. And if you can anchor a price to something else, then you are setting perspective for that price with your customer. So you'll see this a lot, fast food. You want small, medium, or large, offering free prices. That's interesting. Now, I've seen people like Dan Miller who have, okay, a book. And then in addition to the book, here's a bundle where there's a book and an audio. And then there's a third price that's a higher price point, And it's the bundle. It's the, the full package. It's a coaching call or a webinar and a book and an audio file or something. And there's three different prices. And I've heard him say people will end up, some people will get that higher priced item, but then most people will get the middle item versus just the book. And it's kind of based on pricing. So is that similar to anchoring? Or I don't know, what's your experience with that? No, that exactly. That's a great example of anchoring. What's happening there? Your perception of the middle and higher prices are being anchored by the lower price. Okay, the lower price sets the threshold. And then what you're doing in your mind is, okay, if I buy the middle option is what's added in there in my mind worth the additional value from the lower one. And also, it works from the top down, too. The higher price is also kind of anchoring up the same way the lower price is anchoring down. The other thing Dan's doing there is he's bundling, putting things together. A lot of times creating bundles where you can't buy them separately. The only way to get maybe one of those things in the bundle is to buy the bundle. You can't buy it separately. So, yeah, those are common pricing techniques. That's awesome. So, Kirk, you hired Jonathan Stark as your coach to make a switch from hourly to the value model pricing. What would you recommend to everyone as far as getting a coach or mentor to learn the art of value? So even those who haven't sold their first product. I think it is easier to implement a new business model, which value pricing is a business model. When you get down to it, it's a way of doing business. It's based on a set of beliefs. And so Like when I started, I realized it was going to be easier to make the switch. I was going to make less mistakes. I was going to be able to make it faster. I was going to be able to have somebody as a sounding board. So having a coach, I think, is very, very helpful and something I would encourage people to do. Look for somebody who you think has been where you want to go 
and can give you the advice to help you get there. And you want to be able to ask questions of them and, and run that by. So you want this truly interactive kind of relationship. Also, I think just studying is also helpful. For me, what I did for three months, even before I engaged a coach, was I studied. I bought some books and I read about it. So I was working on shaping my belief system. So when I went to get coaching, I was ready for it because I'd already started working on my belief system. And that allowed me to get more out of the coaching relationship as well. So I think hiring a coach is a tremendous thing, especially when you're talking about something with pricing or a business model that's going to affect the prices you charge. Kirk, how can the listeners improve their belief system? I think first you have to realize what are your current beliefs? How are you doing things now? Why are you doing them that way? Are you doing them that way just because other people have, like with hourly pricing, nine times out of 10, the reason people price by the hour is because that's what most of the people they've known are doing. And how do they determine that price? So they go, well, the best guy in town is charging $400 an hour. And I kind of consider myself to be half as good as him. So I'll charge 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> Seriously, that's what happens. And, and you're laughing underscores the fact that it's silly. Well, I, but there's a time where I would say that sounds reasonable. <laughs> so. No, I was just going to say, you're right. It's silly. I just think that sitting down and asking yourself, what is my business model right now? And how did I come to this? And if it was intentional and if you thought about it ahead of time, great. But most people don't. And that's what mm -hmm. value pricing did for me is it forced me to go, well, why am I doing it this way? And when I started answering those questions and comparing it to this different business model, now I'm being intentional about how I do it. Kurt, you've mentioned, or we've mentioned a few names like Jonathan Stark, and I, I know you're connected with a lot of really smart and generous people. Who is doing something that interests you? Great question. I think the first thing I would just talk about a couple of mentors for me in this process. One is Ed Kless. He's a director of partner development for Sage Software. He's really been a mentor to me in this and now a friend. Another person is Ron Baker. Ron's written a book called Implementing Value Pricing, which is a very good book. It's also a very long book. It's over 300 pages, but it's a, it's a very, very good book. People online that are interesting me right now, I'm just interested in looking at a lot of different ways. I want to see how other people think of value. So, for example, something you're involved with right now, Jared, I th and correct me if I get the name wrong, but I think it's Business Republic. You're doing a retreat with those guys, and I think they have something called, what, the $100 MBA. One of the things I found interesting in their courses is they say there's 12 different ways to create value. And I was like, cool. I want to find out what they have to say on those 12 ways of value. So I'm just looking to find out what other people are saying. So there's one that I've noticed. There was a free online webinar that was done by creativelive.com recently. Now you can go back and pay like, I think, 150 bucks to rewatch it. Um, but again, it's talking about pricing and value. I'm just looking for people who are doing things in innovative ways. And I also just love talking with people about what is the product or service they're trying to do? So like, for example, when we were in NMX, I could sit down at a table with somebody who's well-respected in the community and they were thinking about a new service. And I got some new ideas for how to do value just based on the business model that they were trying to figure out how they were going to interact with their customers. So I don't know that I answered your question, but I'm looking for just new ways and new information to expand my perception of the subject. Kirk, I find that refreshing to hear that because you have a lot of good insight into this topic, but you're also open to the idea of, hey, there's other models and other 
things that I can learn from other people. So that's nice to hear that. Yeah, I don't claim to know it all. I just know that the more I learn, the more I can offer to other people when this topic comes up. Yep. So Kirk, what is the best place for listeners to learn more about what you're doing, your upcoming live events, staying connected with everything you're doing online? Sure. The best place to find us right now is artofvalue.com. That's a website. You can also find us on Twitter at Art of Value. We're going to be launching our podcast, which hopefully will give us an opportunity to educate people on this further, give them more topics. And so those are probably the three best ways, the website, Twitter, and uh, the podcast coming soon. Well, I'm excited about the podcast for sure. Hey, Kirk, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I think I'd leave you with this. Pricing is a skill that you can learn just like anything else. And by putting the focus on value, once you realize how high the value is you're creating, it gives you an opportunity to price. But then learn the skills of pricing so that when you have that opportunity, you can experiment, you can learn, you can learn to do things like anchoring and bundling and offering choices. That's how, what I would leave people with. Pricing is something you can learn and it's something you should study just like people study writing or interviewing. And Kirk, how much do you charge to answer a question? <laughs> That's a great question. The first thing I want to do is I want to have a conversation. I want to know what is your problem? What are the results you're trying to achieve? I want to find out your particular situation. Then we'll figure out a price that fits. I don't charge the same price. People ask me, what do you charge? I'm like, well, it depends. <laughs> that's, a, that's a safe and good answer. Hey, Kirk, we wish you well. Best wishes to you and your family and the art of value and, and just everything you have going on, man. We appreciate it. Well, Jared, thanks for having me on the show. John, thanks for being co-host. It was a pleasure to hang out with you guys this afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks, Kirk. Pricing is a skill that you can learn just like anything else. And by putting the focus on value, once you realize how high the value is you're creating, it gives you an opportunity to price. But then learn the skills of pricing so that when you have that opportunity, you can experiment, you can learn, you can learn to do things like anchoring and bundling and offering choices.